I am forced into speech because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing this contemplated invasion of the Antarctic, with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice cap. And I am the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubt of the real facts, as I must reveal them, is inevitable. Yet, if I suppressed what will seem extravagant and incredible, there would be nothing left. The hitherto withheld photographs, both ordinary and aerial, will count in my favor, for they are damnably vivid and graphic. Still, they will be doubted because of the great lengths to which clever fakery can be carried. The ink drawings, of course, will be jeered at as obvious impostures, notwithstanding a strangeness of technique which art experts ought to remark and puzzle over. In the end, I must rely on the judgment and standing of the few scientific leaders who have, on the one hand, sufficient independence of thought to weigh my data on its own hideously convincing merits, or in the light of certain primordial and highly baffling myth cycles. And on the other hand, sufficient influence to deter the exploring world in general from any rash and overambitious program in the region of those mountains of madness. HPPodcast.com That was the first paragraph of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. I am Chris Laggy. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you are joining us on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com. That was a new reader to the show, Joe Freya. Great actor I know out here in Los Angeles. We were uh, doing a, a show over at this theater out here, Sacred Fools. It, you know, this kind of thing happens where you say, oh, you're into Lovecraft? And then, you know, an hour later, we've been having this late night conversation about, you know, Lovecraft and the stories and when did you start reading them and that kind of thing. You know, it's uh-huh. so funny how many people... People you you wouldn't even know that they're into it, and then suddenly you strike up a friendship totally based on this. It's, it's strangest thing. So glad to have Joe on the show. Oh, uh, that's a good thing because I find the opposite of that. Every time I mention to people, I go, "Oh yeah, I do this podcast about H.P. Lovecraft." They go, "Who?" Yeah, but they probably already tuned out when you said podcast. All oh, right, that's, that's <laughs> probably that's probably true. We've added a member to our our team here. Uh, we have an intern that we have tricked into to helping us out with our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Brooke Burgess. Brooke is, she was attending the University of Queensland in Australia and uh, is interested in Lovecraft and she's actually studying it. I didn't know that you could actually do that in school. Yeah. And a lot of the notes that we're going to be using on this show uh, were provided by Brooke. So thanks so much, Brooke, and we're glad to have you aboard. Makes sense. And the music uh, also you may recognize from uh, our good friend Reber Clark. Yeah. So I said, Reber, we really like the music that you gave us before because, you know, he did this film called Lovecraft Paragraphs and we yep. used some of that for uh, the uh, Houdini show and a couple of other times we've used his work. And I said, if you have time, you think you could throw something together and then a week later he sends me a cd that's got fully imagined sketches of different scenes from at the mountains of madness and they're all great so we're using his work as well as some of the earlier stuff he did from lovecraft paragraphs in the show throughout and i think this is probably going to be a multi-part episode you think we can get through this in one uh, i think we probably do this just in one episode yeah actually we'll we'll probably have some time to spare (laughs) (laughs) no this is going to be we'll we'll see how long but it's definitely going to be more than four episodes probably yeah i'm thinking so. this is my maybe third time reading this book and every time i do it i'm surprised at how long it is yeah it's long is it lovecraft's longest work it's got to be i think so yeah although the mound i think the mound took me about two (laughs) weeks to get through 
the mound just seems like Lovecraft's longest word. Yeah. But yeah. I think the Mountains of Madness actually is the, the, the most words, along with the case of Charles Sexter Ward and the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Dream Quest flew by for me, though, because that's... that's <laughs> I, God, I love that. That reminds me, Chad, that somebody posted on our Facebook page, there is a, a sketch comedy show, and it's called Burniston. Mm-hmm. It's a, like a Scottish show or whatever. I don't know exactly yeah. what it is. And they have this love, kind of Lovecraftian sketch <laughs> where a guy goes yeah. to his like his landlord or you know his management and he's got like this unknown unknowable thing in his basement. it's really funny go i've got an unknowable unnameable thing in my basement and i want it punted (laughs) (laughs) but as it relates to dream quest i think enough people are aware of lovecraft that they get the unnameable thing or how he refuses to describe stuff but it's when he said he haven't you filed a complaint before and he's like yeah yeah uh, I, my neighbors, there was a bunch of bizarre chanting over there, but I, my neighbors keep getting taken up to the moon by cats, so I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. That's so specific. I mean, I think uh, maybe people who listen to the show got it, but that's probably it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Speaking of people who listen to the show, yeah, there are more of them all the time, and uh, people know that before we did our last episodes on Whisper, we had to move to a new server. After that, which I thought was kind of the end of it, our bandwidth has been going crazy, which we love. That's great, but yeah. it's actually ca- it's starting to. I feel like you and I are roommates again, and we got to like pony up rent. This thing yeah. used to be cheap, and like every month yeah. now we got to we got to figure out how to pay for it. We need to raise some more money. In that vein, or what we've decided to do is a, another ransom for an, another reading. Yeah, we've yep, agreed yep, on yep. that, right? I, we've agreed. Uh, we are doing two two short story readings. Uh, mm-hmm. One will be Cool Air, mm-hmm. which is a, a one of my favorites, and uh, my my wife is going to be reading it. Wow. Yeah. Keeping it in the family. Well, we're I also going to do The Cats of Ulther, right. which... My wife is going to be reading. Hey, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be the other Pfeiffer and Lackey bringing you some H.P. Lovecraft. All female cast. Yeah. It's going to be good stuff. The Cats of Ulther and Cool Air, Heather Clinky and Rachel Lackey together again for the first time uh, doing <laughs> some Lovecraftian reading. So, we're going to reach $1,000. We're going to release that. We're already yeah. working on it. And that'll pay for us for a couple of months. Also, we're talking internally, and, and you know, the marketing department for our company here yeah. exists. It's, it's you and me, and we're terrible at it. Yes, so, we're I, really bad. Be, we really need to get it together and go out to uh, some folks and try and get some sponsorships but we just wanted to announce on the show anybody who's listening to the show who thinks maybe they've got a, a game or a, a book or anything like that that they'd like us to promote yeah. we're happy a to do it a monster truck rally whatever it is man yeah. <laughs> we'll do it you know one thing that i do want to promote is you remember graham eberhardt you know that guy i do i boy do i know that guy of course i do he's at my wedding for crying out loud <laughs> <laughs> well he has uh, some new fiction coming out and he asked me to mention on the show so i'm gonna do that right now he, it's uh, how the west was weird volume two this is an anthology put out by pulp work press and uh, right now they're holding a contest where you can win a free copy of How the West Was Weird Volume 2 if you review Volume 1 on Amazon. And we'll put up a link to Pulpwork Press and how you can get the book. But uh, if you go there and and review it, you might get a a new copy. Now the book, it's got 20 short stories which blend the traditional Western with robots and dinosaurs and aliens and werewolves and all kinds of good weird fiction stuff, right? What we all like. One of the stories in Volume 2 was written by Graham. And for people who listen to the show, he had the displeasure of reading The Moon Bog and uh, The Quest of (laughs) Irinon. Quest of Irinon in particular, I think he didn't like. He actually wrote me he said he's deeply sorry as they are terrible terrible stories <laughs> and uh he also wanted me to mention that he's pretty sure he mispronounced the word eyelet and uh hopes listeners can forgive him for that i don't think they will but uh, no there's no forgiving hey you know chad that was a really good example right there of, of us doing an ad yeah it sounded really natural it did yeah we should get started the story starts off with an unnamed narrator mm-hmm. uh, who we eventually find out is named fred dreyer dreyer dyer what <laughs> fred... <laughs> wait who's fred dreyer Fred Dreyer's from Hunter. <laughs> oh, no. My mistake. William Dyer is his name. Hunter, man. 
I love Hunter so much. Moving on, William Dyer is a geology professor from Miskatonic University. Now, we don't actually get his full name until Shadow Out of Time. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I, he's not referred to in here? He is referred to by people. But not, oh, you, we don't get his full name. We, we just don't get his last full name. name. Yeah. Man. That's a whole other story that we'll talk about. Which There's there's such a richness to this material. I mean, as we go on and, and you see the connections and there's more and more of them, you know, you yeah. really understand the world building that Lovecraft was doing. And I know some of it's inconsistent because he would change his mind about things or just use whatever served the story. But it really has been a payoff to go through all of these one by one, you know. And this one in particular at the Mountains of Madness contains so much sort of prehistory. And we were talking about this before we started doing the show, the demythologizing of the, the mythos. Right, right, right. Yeah. This is what Robert Price and S.T. Joshi have talked about. Kind of Lovecraft's earlier stuff is very supernatural. It's a lot of magic, a lot of gods and things like that. And the demythologizing of it makes it instead of gods into alien life forms that we just don't understand. Instead of magic, mm-hmm. it's just technology. That's sort of the way things were in the last story as well, uh, Whisper in Darkness, where there right. was a lot of this folklore, and that folklore was kind of bent into this science fiction-y, you know, alien culture, society, civilization, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Specifically, he takes things that he's written about before, and we'll point this out as, as they pop up, and explain them in a more scientific way. There's this spirit at the beginning of the story. He clearly has just, I mean, he's in love with the Antarctic and the Antarctic yes. Ocean, and clearly he has just read and read and read about this stuff. You would think that parts of the story, from my taste, I wouldn't like because it kind of goes on and on. And you do get a little bored during this book sometimes. But he really does get you on his side. You get the spirit of adventure. Like, you really want to know, what are these guys doing? It's crazy. They're going out into this bizarre wilderness. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of neat because I feel like Arctic expeditions are so close to what I had always envisioned interstellar travel like. Because it's such an alien landscape. And you can't survive mm-hmm. out there unless you bring stuff with you. Yeah. You're not going out there in a tank top. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, you'll die. <laughs> yes. You do. Well, you've got to just plan that. You got to plan your food. You got to plan your fuel. You know, your, uh-huh. your housing. You know, all that stuff. And it's just such an unforgiving landscape that it's just—it's really interesting. And I—I I wasn't really that into Arctic exploration stuff until I read mm-hmm. the story, and then I got really interested in it. And Lovecraft was into it ever since he was a kid. You know, Paul of uh, Paul Cthulhu fame. He mm. has the original National Geographic that Lovecraft also owned. Not the, not the exact same copy, but, you know, that edition of it where he got most of his information from this expedition that he often uh, refers to in mm. the story. Oh, cool. Lovecraft is really hard with the facts in this because, obviously, he really loves it. But into the story here, he mentions sure. that he's going um, with Miskatonic University, and he's being accompanied by uh, Frank Peabody, who is a, a geologist. Mm. Now, you say Peabody as I was reading this, because I frequently don't pronounce things right. It's, he was Pabody in my head. But, well, yeah, I, I always thought so, too. But it wasn't until I read some notes that Joshi made that mm. Lovecraft said specifically about this name. You know, where, where'd you get this name? Lovecraft said, I chose it uh. as a name typical of good old New England stock, yet not sufficiently common to sound uh conventional or hackneyed okay and then it says here the more common spelling is peabody spelled p-a-b-o-d-y so it's peabody it's peabody well that gives me some backstory on that character he has had to correct people his whole life yes my name is peabody (laughs) this geologist that's going on this expedition with him uh designed a really awesome drill which is super light and able to go on these expeditions because usually these mm-hmm. dr- drills are these big things. They have these super cool airplanes that are made of duralumin, okay. which is a c- composite of aluminum, copper, magnesium, and manganese. Adamantium. And adamantium. And right. But no, wait, hold on. It's, <laughs> normally these things were made of wood before, but the wood would get, when it got cold, it would break and just fall apart and couldn't take, you know, smashing into ice. It would just, but this stuff will dent and bend. 
which is good. Oh, okay. So they're planning on going down to the Antarctic uh, via the Ross Sea, and they mm-hmm. wanted to get some rocks and soil samples and all that stuff. Peabody had come up with using hot electrified copper rods to melt through the ice to the because you know there's huge glaciers that are you know hundreds and hundreds of feet thick that you have to get through that to actually get to the soil samples that are underneath. Lots of detail about this type of thing. Well, yeah, but you know it's a great idea to have your geologist as a main character because I imagine that this is just what he's preoccupied with all the time. He's not Indiana Jones. He, right. he likes rocks. He likes rocks. And geology is the study of deep time. It's the study of how things change over vast amounts of time. Right. It's actually a very interesting portal into the whole notion of what we, you know, what's revealed to us as we go through. He's the perfect main character because you, you have to really understand things in a kind of cyclopean scale, right? I mean, right. the written history is a very short amount of time, actually. Oh, yeah. What do we have? Like 4,000 years, basically. We're yeah. starting to understand humanity a little better now that we're getting into DNA and, and that kind of thing. But for a geologist, that's a drop in the bucket. Right, yeah. Anyway, I was terrible in geology and school, by the way. I was, I was terrible. They should have geology students read this story. They should. Get them excited about it. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll get them excited, sure. <laughs> Back to the story. Dyer's explaining to us about what's going on. You know, this is all from his perspective. He kind mm-hmm. of keeps dropping hints about this thing that has happened and why he's telling his story now. There's this Starkmore Merriweather expedition that's going to be taking off for the Antarctic, and he is trying to persuade them not to go. The story we're reading is Dyer's argument not to go. And he talks about how, you know, you've probably heard about this first expedition from the press. It was in the Arkham Advisor. It was in the Associated Press. They had wireless updates. Mm-hmm. Kind of a big deal. You might have heard about this stuff. Well, it wasn't the whole story. You know, but yeah. I'm going to give you the whole story, the unedited version of it. Now, if I read this and I was an explorer, I'd be like, screw you. This sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm you know, <laughs> it, it has yeah. the opposite effect. But he's yeah, he's trying to say this is the reason you shouldn't go. At this point in the story, this we kind of get a breakdown of who, what the whole team is going to be and you know who's in it. We've mm-hmm. got William Dyer and Frank Peabody. Those guys are two geologists. Lake, okay. who is a professor of biology, and Atwood, who's a physics and uh, meteorology guy. And with them are going to be 16 assistants, seven grad students, nine mechanics, and they're going to all be loaded onto two ships, which are ex-whalers, called the Arkham mm-hmm. and the Miskatonic. Awesome. I'm excited. I'm super excited about all this stuff. Yeah, it's, you know, like, know. it's like an adventure. You know, they're, they're loading up the stuff. But they're also loading on these planes, which they're going to put together when they get down to the Arctic. It's just so neat. Now, one of the grad students is a guy named uh, Danforth. I don't think he gets yes. introduced quite no, yet. No, no, Danforth, but... not yet. Not yet. Danforth comes in and he's really, he, they kind of introduce him and he seems very cool. And is he's my guy, yeah. And yeah, when but... I'm reading the story, I'm always thinking about Danforth. But we're not here yet. We don't, we, okay. Danforth's not yet entered. They leave Boston Harbor on September 2nd, uh, 1930. They reach the Arctic Circle by October 20th. Now, mm-hmm. of course, being in the South, the summer is the winter, our winter. It's for their summer, even though it's our winter, and they're down there because they're going to have longer days, it's going to be much, much warmer, and they'll actually be able to get the ships down there. As they get past the Antarctic Circle, they see all these beautiful snow-capped mountains, and they get to this specific mountain range called the Admiralty Range, which is a real mountain range. All these things are, mm-hmm. are real locations that Lovecraft actually read about. Right. And then what about the, uh, the last lap of the voyage? The last lap of the voyage was vivid and fancy-stirring. Great barren peaks of mystery looming up constantly against the west as the low northern sun of noon, or the still lower horizon-grazing southern sun of midnight, poured its hazy reddish rays over the white snow, bluish ice and water lanes, and black bits of exposed granite slope. Through the desolate summits swept raging intermittent gusts of terrible Antarctic wind, whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping, with notes extending over a wide range. 
and which, for some subconscious mnemonic reason, seemed to me disquieting and even dimly terrible. Something about the scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick, and of the still stranger and more disturbing descriptions of the evilly fabled Plateau of Lang, which occurred in the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Ahazred. I was rather sorry, later on, that I had ever looked into that monstrous book at the college library. So let's talk a little bit about Nicholas Rorick, who is mentioned a lot of times in the story. Lovecraft had seen his paintings in in person in 1930 when he was living in New York City. Yeah. There's a little quote he wrote from a letter to his buddy James Morton where he said, Better than the Surrealists is good old Nick Rorick, whose joint at Riverside Drive and 103rd Street is one of my shrines in the Pest Zone. What the hell does the Pest Zone mean? Is this some part of New York where he just thinks there's a lot of immigrants or something? He Probably. doesn't want to go down there? Probably. Wow. He goes on to say, There is something in this handling of perspective and atmosphere which to me suggests other dimensions and alien orders of being, or at least the gateways leading to such. Those fantastic carven stones and lonely upland deserts, those ominous, almost sentient lines and jagged pinnacles, and above all, those curious, cubical edifices clinging to precipitous slopes and edging upward to forbidden needle-like peaks. We'll put some links up to some of this art, but when you see it, it really gives you a good uh, context for some of the things that are going to happen later in the story. It looks like futurism a little bit, but it just looks bizarre, the way that these giant cubes are set against the mountains. He brings it up again and again, and I almost feel bad for a reader who doesn't have the internet or you know yeah, i mean no. these these are things that'd be very difficult to go see if you have no, and he references them as if you've seen them now another thing that i want to bring up here just within the case of the story in lovecraft's world this is something that jarred me is when he brings up the necronomicon and that he has read it <laughs> I know. <laughs> He's a geologist. Why is he reading the Necronomicon? It just gets passed around that school, man. I if guess you, so. You like, yeah, everybody reads it at some point. We talked about it in Whisper. I mean, it's just something. He's a folklorist, so I get it, okay? Yeah. Maybe there's a connection with the occult and folklore and mythology and all this stuff. He's a geologist. Why is he <laughs> reading it? Is there geological excerpts from the Necronomicon? Is there? I think it's just a good read. I oh, think okay. the thing about the Necronomicon <laughs> that nobody really talks about honestly, is that it's just an awesome read. Like, you can't put it down. <laughs> Every time you think one thing's going to happen, another thing happens. You know, it's one of those things where you lay down, I'm just going to read this for a half hour, and then it's four in the morning. You're like, i got to work tomorrow. I've been up reading the Necronomicon all goddamn night. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There's right around that paragraph that we just heard. Well, he says something that really made me laugh about penguins. Oh, yeah. Myriads of grotesque penguins squawked and flapped their fins. Penguins are like the cutest. yeah animals. Brooke, when she was taken out, she wrote this, uh, among the many descriptions of penguins he has in there, this is the most menacing description of cute animals I've read. He would, wake, he would make the worst nature documentary narrator. <laughs> okay, so back to the story. They're moving down further. They're still on their journey. They get to Mount Erebus and Mount Terror, which is the actual place. These are actual places. 10,900 feet in altitude. That's right. Now extinct yeah. as a volcano, yeah. Erebus is a is a volcano, or um, and it's mm. a, well not active, active, but there's puffs of smoke coming out of it, and this is when we get introduced to Danforth. 
he right. he's kind of you know they're maybe up on the deck and in Ian's graphic novel they kind of have a scene here he rewrites it a little bit by the way Ian Colbert who, who, Ian who Colbert is this guy? he's the guy who did the amazing graphic novel adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness ah yes and actually I think Ian's going to join us at some point on he our journey he is going to yeah. join us yes on a later episode we couldn't get him schedule wise tonight in a couple weeks we're going to have him so we're going to get his input on it but he's got a great awesome. scene where Danforth and Dyer are on the deck of the ship and it's kind of the sun is setting and it's kind of really cool looking and everything like that and uh danforth you know kind of mentions that this is what probably inspired poe you know this mountain right here when he wrote the arthur gordon pym it's such an interesting connection because and i think poe is more than maybe dunsany is is more an influence on him but but in his heart lovecraft is just the poe guy i mean he loves him and and he's the one that's carrying on that tradition of poe and of weird fiction in america but poe didn't write any novels except for arthur gordon pym yeah. which is very long. It's sort of like his Candide. You know, it's a, it's a crazy adventure that this guy from Nantucket goes on. And it's interesting that that's so closely connected to Lovecraft's only real novel, which is At the Mountains of Madness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess Charles Dexter Ward is too, but this was published in his lifetime. I mean, this was his yeah. thing. This, was, this is what he put out, and it's uh, in a lot of ways a summation of all the work he'd done beforehand. Now, I haven't read Arthur Gordon Pym shamefully I've, I've never gotten into it but i know that most it's it's a guy that accidentally gets on a ship and goes on this crazy adventure and in the end it really focuses heavily on the antarctic this is a quote that uh, danforth gives the lavas that restlessly roll their sulfurous currents down yanak in the ultimate climbs of the pole that groan as they roll down mat yanak in the realms of the boreal pole this is the inspiration to what what Poe wrote, this mountain that you're looking at right now. And then, of course, oh, I Dyer's like, oh, I'm a big Poe fan, too. You're a Poe fan? And they're like, oh, yeah. And they totally hit it off, and they become really big pals. <laughs> but which is interesting, you were talking about Lovecraft being a big Poe guy. Yeah. This connection to the Yanak and Mount Erebus was made by Lovecraft. Like, nobody ever connected those two things together. And oh. so that's like Lovecraft's kind of contribution to scholarship on Poe. Thomas Mabbitt? wrote Lovecraft as a student of Poe, where he talks about a bunch of things that Lovecraft kind of put together. Yeah, and uh, there's a few things in this, this actual text that are important. I, I know that in Pym, there are these cannibals, the Tislalians. <laughs> we're murdering everything in this. Yeah, Tislalians, I think is what they're called. But they're like these savage natives, and uh, they have all sorts of different bizarre things that they chant. But at one point in the story, they say, Tekalili, Tekalili. And uh, that becomes very important in, in this story later oh i didn't realize that oh really you did not no no yeah it's directly lifted from pym i actually got my complete works of poe out the kindle is a great thing and it's a bad thing at the same time because i'll say this i read this whole i read at the mountains of manis this time on the kindle yeah and the the best part of that is that there's that dictionary in it so anytime i didn't know what something was i could quickly look it up i didn't have to get up i'm just laying in bed reading it wonderful but at the same time when i picked up my poe which i actually have in book form I'm looking for Tekalili in the story because I was like, I just want to find out what part he says this. And I was uh-huh. so frustrated I couldn't just search for it. You know what I mean? Like I <laughs> right. had to actually turn pages and use my eyes. It was driving me nuts. <laughs> so lazy you've become. I know. Like, you're just like those guys from the mound. Yeah, exactly. Technology exactly. has made, me, made you lazy. Well, it happens in this story as well. I mean, the other things, uh, they used to be able to travel in interstellar space and then hey. they forget how to do it. Oh, I'm sorry, hey. I'm sorry. Hey, you're jumping the gun, Pally. When they get to this area, which is called Ross Island, they get their small mm-hmm. boats and then they start unloading everything mm-hmm. from, from the ships, from the Arkham and, and so on. Mm-hmm. They've got all their, you know, their dogs and their sledges. You know, they call Lovecraft uses the word sledges in here instead of sleds. Mm-hmm. But when I'm in the UK, everybody, you know, like when we would go sledding in the 
in the wintertime, they, yeah. they go sledging here. Really? Yeah. Damn you, Lovecraft. What's wrong with America? <laughs> Why are you such an Anglophile? Such an Anglophile. Well, you know, this when this got published, this story got turned down by Weird Tales, right? It did. It did get t- turned down by Weird Tales. It did get accepted by Astounding Stories. Right. But it was heavily edited. And one of the edits that drove Lovecraft crazy was that they Americanized his spelling. All of it, yeah. Yeah, they probably corrected sledges even. I don't know. I haven't seen that text. No. But, um... Well, it's kind of a, yeah, an inter- interesting thing because they don't have his original text that he sent to them. So all that mm. we know that exists is is what he kind of made some notes on his version that he got back from them. You know, like made some notes in the margins and things like that. And also he has the typeset of Lovecraft's of this story. Okay. But we don't yeah. actually know what it is. And, and Joshi's trying to piece together as mm. best he could what he thought would, you know, you put things back the way Lovecraft would have written them and all those types of things. So what is usually yeah. floating around is is the is the right version or the most right version? So it's the corrections that he then made notes on to try and kind of get it back to what he wanted, and that's what we have. Yeah. But we don't have that original thing. Actually, there's a funny quote. <laughs> Joshi wrote this. HPL's long paragraphs are split up, punctuation was altered, and toward the end, several passages amounting to about a thousand words were omitted. HPL fumed at the alterations, calling the editor, uh, Tremaine, that goddamn dung of a hyena. Whoa! (laughs) Dung of a hyena? Yeah, that's what he called the editor. Wow! Yeah. You know, I gotta say, writers out there, editors are good people. They are trying to help you. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be so sensitive. I think that, that, you know, Lovecraft was just used to writing his books and leaving them, you know, putting them in a, in a, in a drawer. But you need editors, man. You do. And I, I'm going to be that guy that says it. The story is probably better served. What they cut was probably a good thing. Yeah. Because they're, even within the story as I read it now, there are repetitions that are unnecessary. You know, right. I wish somebody was coming in there with a machete and, and, and putting it in shape, but... Whatever, that's just my opinion. I like editors. Yes. Chad, what's, what's your job again? What do you do? I'm an editor. <laughs> yeah. All right. So anyway, <laughs> moving on. The plan is they're going to try and get everything done, all of their research done in the summertime. Uh-huh. So by winter, they can get out of there. They make plans just in case things take longer to send the Miskatonic, the ship, not the city, up north before the winter <laughs> hits. And then they, right. they'll bunk down and, and camp out down there for the winter. When they get there, it's not that cold, really. It's only about 20 or 25 degrees above zero, which is you know pretty close to New England winters. So they're all like, hey, yeah. this, is, this is pretty cool. Pretty easy breezy. I did like that part of the story, though. Hey, this is, this is the way we roll in New England. <laughs> Right. What, you think this cold scares us? Please. They're going to move everything down to a camp about 700 miles south. That's mm-hmm. that's their their plan. They're setting up this kind of temporary base where they unload everything and kind of start packing up stuff. But while they're there waiting for the planes and everything to get set up, they go out and take some samples and get to work. You know, these guys are scientists. Mm-hmm. They're down here. They're excited, all that stuff. So on November 21st, they finally fly down. It takes four hours for them to fly there. Mm -hmm. They set up their new camp and start taking some samples, and they find some ferns and seaweeds and gastropods and all types of Mm -hmm. stuff. They're super excited. Everything's going great. Um, On January 6th, 1931, Lake Peabody and Daniels and six students and four mechanics, they go fly over the South Pole just for Mm -hmm. fun, I guess, really. Well, not just for fun, but they want to see if they can see anything new. Um, that right. nobody else has seen because very few humans have ever been down that far. That's got to be pretty freaking exciting, man. Yeah. Because you, who knows what you're going to find? It, yeah. It, maybe you're going to find an ancient alien city. <laughs> you might. <laughs> but I just imagine that it has such a feeling of both humility 
and pure enthusiasm to see things that have never been seen. One of the quotes I really like here, it says, distant mountains floated in the sky as enchanted cities, and often the whole white world would dissolve into a gold, silver, and scarlet land of Dunsinian dreams and adventurous <laughs> expectancy <laughs> under the magic of low midnight sun. It's a, actually, the low midnight sun is a great kind of word picture, but why is he just assuming that everybody's read Lord Dunsany or Dunsany or however you pronounce it? I mean, I, it's just, it's I this thread know. that goes through all his writing. He's like, you know, you know, you read those, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, no, Lovecraft, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but I mean, maybe he does that to try and get people to read some Dunsany. Which is cool. He's almost like Tarantino in a way, you know? <laughs> I'm not, I'm actually not kidding. Like, you go and see no, one of his saying, movies, yeah. it's full of references to other filmmakers, and you can go and enjoy the movie, and it's fine. And then, then you get embarrassed by your film nerd friend who's like, oh, you didn't get the reference to these five World War II movies? <laughs> well, I've seen all of them. You know, I mean, you're just like, oh, okay. Uh, he was referencing something I didn't get. Uh, but the story is still good, whether you know it or not. Right, exactly. So. Exactly. The plan was that they would set up this camp that was about 700 miles south. And they're going to later, you know, after a few months, move mm-hmm. about 500 miles eastward. You know, everybody's in good shape. Everything's fine. Their health is strong. They've got lots of lime juice. Yeah. Um, Atwood is, they're glad they have him down there because he has all these ways of making shelters for the airplanes and setting up windbreaks with snow blocks and doing all this. You know, it's just going great. Couldn't be a better. I know. It's, I wish he wasn't writing about how great it was going. You know, <laughs> he has that sentence. He says, our good luck and efficiency had indeed been almost uncanny. <laughs> like, I, you're just asking for to happen, man. <laughs> exactly. So, um... Everything's going great. However, Lake wants those guys. You remember Lake, he's the biologist. He says yeah. he thinks that they should go westward for a very specific reason because they found these triangular markings in, the, in slate mm-hmm. that are contradicting everything they ever understood about nature and geology. He was strangely convinced that the marking was the print of some bulky, unknown, and radically unclassifiable organism of considerably advanced evolution notwithstanding that the rock which bore it was of so vastly ancient a date. Cambrian, if not actually pre-Cambrian, has to preclude the probable existence not only of all highly evolved life, but of any life at all above the unicellular, or at most the trilobite stage. These fragments, with their odd marking, must have been 500 million to 1,000 million years old. 1,000 million. What yeah, what he's saying here, Chad, if you if you didn't understand I those, didn't those words. To me. Break it down. <laughs> is that there's some footprints, some big kind of markings or of a large animal or creature mm-hmm. before there were large creatures on the planet. Yeah. There were like single soul celled organisms that existed. That's all that should have been around. Exactly. And and yet they're finding this big huge footprint using that word loosely. Yeah. This is crazy. You know, you make a joke saying, Chad, if you didn't understand those words, but I do have to say that while, <laughs> while I was listening to that quote, I get this anxiety every time I see the word organism in a paragraph. <laughs> I thought you were going to say orgasm. Well, yeah. Do you remember when you, like in class, you would have to read aloud sometimes and uh-huh. you take turns and it was, it was in science class and if you ever had a paragraph that had the word organism in it, it would, you'd look at it with just this total fear because you're just convinced you're going to say the word orgasm in front of the whole class. Exactly. No, I've, that's happened. That's happened. Not to me. I've, I've been in class when it's happened to other when it's kids. A me too. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I, I, I'm glad you did spell it out for me because I was really distracted <laughs> while I was listening to that quote. 
<laughs> and that ends the first chapter. It ends the first chapter, and actually, uh, it ends this first episode of At the Mountains of Madness. Now, our plan here had been to get through the first two, two chapters. chapters. But we've just uh, been having so much fun. We're, we're going to let this take as long as it's going to take. And, and we'll probably speed it up as we go along. But we, we like the story, and there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. things that, uh, to talk about. Yes. So. Yeah, why not? Exactly. Why not? So let me say this. I want to thank Joe Freya for doing our readings. Yes. I want to thank uh, Brooke Burgess for providing some of the excellent notes on the story that she provided for us. I also want to thank our uh, third member of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, Mr. Michael Mann. Oh, yes. Without him, we would have been totally screwed, and this podcast would be uh, not existing anymore because Chad and I would not have been able to figure out what we were supposed to do when our internet provider said you can't. Yeah, and the new site design is awesome. Yeah, it's it's, it's all creepy stuff. and green, and uh, he he just put some new designs in our cafe press store as well. So that's a good place to go and, and buy some gear and, and support Mike Mann, uh, Reber Clark. Reber, yeah, of course, this is good stuff, man. I feel like I'm on an adventure when I'm listening to it. You know, good job, man. Good yeah. job. And with that, I am Chris Lackey, and I'm Chad Pfeiffer, and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!